which way do you think the wind is blowing? I think it's you almost don't want to say it to tempt fate do you but I think it's blowing in the right direction now I really yeah. do to that couldn't have orchestrated that better could we that was really well done Marcus. was that a Mexican holler That's I don't know Mexican what that was <laughs> so we need to deal with the truthfulness of some of these uh, sure. Romaniacs Hello and welcome to the Whatever Happened to B-Day edition of Romaniacs it's the week we're supposed to be leaving the European Union things have not quite gone according to plan at the beginning of the show, you heard independent group MP Heidi Allen buttonholed by our producer Andrew at the Puget's The People March on Saturday, and then Mog disdaining us on the Today programme. We've arrived. <laughs> it's Wednesday 27th of March, the House of Commons has just taken back control, and it's about to commence a series of indicative votes on alternative Brexit strategies. we finished this recording just as the votes begin, so there may well be another podcast this week to cover that. Fun. <laughs> Meanwhile, the revoke <laughs> petition continues to rise, it's just shy of 6 million, which means it's overtaken the population of Denmark. If you're still bored, the Prime Minister may well be resigning at the 1922 committee sometime today, so don't make any plans. I'm Dorian Linsky, and I've got two of our regulars here. Naomi Smith is Chief Operating Officer of Best for Britain, and because she does Romaniacs in a personal capacity, we're not allowed to congratulate her for a fantastic job co-organising the march on Saturday. No, congratulate me, congratulate me. <laughs> was, it, was it your personal moment of triumph? Was it the greatest moment of your life? Uh, no, uh, but my high point was definitely Heseltine's speech, um, which was a bit of a, a tearjerker. Walk tall, keep the faith, go back to your villages, your towns, your cities, tell them that you are here, fighting for our tomorrow, in peace, secure the bitterness and blood shed of Europe's past buried with its history uh, and it's not often that I'll say that hearing from a Conservative is the high point of my day. Yeah, I think he's probably got a bit of a new uh, a new fan base now. Mm-hmm. I mean, I always had a little bit of a soft spot for him because he's always been good on Europe. I like his eyebrows. Okay. <laughs> he's got good eyebrows, like, all the way up. I mean, not quite as good as Norman Lamont's, but they're pretty, they're pretty strong. <laughs> they are. They are. I'm glad you've, you've zoomed in on the, <laughs> on the <laughs> crucial... It's only a matter of time. It happens with age to all men, surely. Those well, you can choose to control it, or, or you, you can go with the eyebrow, <laughs> which I really feel he's Let your done. freak flag fly. Um, what's your sense of the way the, the way things are going, then, Naomi? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> with, Everyone's no, favourite question. No, in terms of not everything, but in terms of, like, uh, you know, with the march and the petition mm. this week, it seems that sort of the Remain voices have, yeah. have been louder. Yeah, and, and most MPs, certainly not all, but most MPs are quite good campaigners, so they do see things like the petition doing incredibly well and know that that's... Uh, you know, something that they need to keep an eye on. And there's a really good website, beatthebrexiteers.uk, which compares the number of people in a constituency that have signed a petition against the sitting MP's majority, uh, which lots of people have been having fun with. Um, I think uh, the march and the, the petition are sort of helping to breathe life back into very weary campaigners um, and on the, the house taking control of the business um, there's a really interesting historical analogy uh, which is the tennis court oath at Versailles in June 1789 mm. where the third estate vowed to take control as the National Assembly and defy the executive of Louis XVI until the constitution had been reshaped mm. and I often talk about us having a, the need for a constitutional convention and us being in a constitutional crisis so just let's hope that this moment is as revolutionary pan out with revolution (laughs) (laughs) with the rights of man it was a very good moment and then afterwards they fucking killed everyone but you know the rights of man Uh, it's Ian Dunt editor of politics.co.uk hello Ian hello hello. Um, you've been on parliamentary lockdown for two weeks was that a a rare opportunity for fresh air physical exercise and making new friends (laughs) yeah yeah it's quite tiring isn't it it felt like when you go on a city break afterwards 
all my that feet, walking. Yeah, my feet hurt. I also found I found it very difficult the standing around. I got quite antsy with the standing around, and so I wanted to keep on going around the sides and seeing everything. And then when I met up with my friend who'd been marching, he was like. Well, that's not fucking marching, is it? Yeah, basically, <laughs> what you've done there is just ruined like the Did way that things look. Did you take a shortcut through St James's Park? Yeah, all over the fucking park. So whenever there was a chance to get away and actually go somewhere, I, I took it. We're um, we're only Romanians. Listeners asking you to swear into their voicemail messages. Okay, one bloke. Okay, one bloke did come up to me and went, "Thank you for the swearing." Which I was like, I mean, I feel like there have been other accomplishments at some stage. Yeah, indeed. Uh, a guy came up to me a few weeks ago after a thing and said, "You've taught my daughter how to swear," which, which I actually did feel like a swell of pride about that one point. <laughs> and what listeners don't know is that we've cut out the question where I asked you what your favourite swear was, and Andrew's getting very anxious. Don't worry, we're not about to repeat that. <laughs> This week's special guest was at the march toting a very stylish Clash-inspired placard that read Safe European Home. It's Guardian columnist, roving chronicler of Brexit land, author of books about New Labour, Britpop and Pink Floyd, and my former boss at Select Magazine, RIP, John Harris. Good afternoon. Hi, John. How was the march for you? I don't really know how to answer that question, because I'm still kind of working it out. I've left feeling quite flat, but I think that's because... I was on the Iraq one. Mm. I went on a few Iraq ones. And I, know, I sort of always have this feeling of noble futility when I'm doing those things since mm. 2003. And I sort of felt like that in this case. And I suppose there's always a question when you get to the end. Pablo Iglesias, I think is his name. I don't know whether he still is or was the leader of Podemos, the new left political party in Spain. Their question that they always ask is, what happens when everyone goes home? which is a really pertinent question. And particularly on the train back, I thought, well, is that it? And I think I feel that way about the petition as well. Like, that's Mm. a good thing. I'm not knocking them at all. But we live in a political culture now where there's just a daily spectacle, and we were the daily spectacle on Saturday, and on Sunday it was whatever it was. Checkers. To to checkers, right? It was uh, Mm. Ian uh, Ian Smith in his open-top Morgan car. Poot, poot. The ruling class laughing at us. And, um, you know, and today it's the seven indicative votes and Oliver Letwin on the Today programme and tomorrow it'll be something else. And it's, it's difficult for those things to acquire traction, I suppose. And also there's absurd elements of it. Anything mediated, you know, I get off the mark. So on the train, I'm looking at what I've been doing on my phone, which is a stupid thing to do. I even searched Clash Banner to see if anyone had put it on Twitter. Like, so I can go, look, to my son, that's your banner. And uh, then you watch it on telly, and I thought the telly reporting of it was awful because it, a lot of it framed it from the point of view of the speakers. Mm. Now, I'm not going to get into this now, but I don't want to hear from Michael Esseltine personally. You know, he's one of the people who's probably ultimately responsible for the fact this has happened, you know, given the fact that there's no industry left in half the country. You know, I know he put a nice exhibition in Liverpool for a bit, but I'm glad I didn't see him. The Garden City, someone's... It was a bit more than an exhibition. Well, yeah, but it didn't fundamentally (laughs) affect the economic future of Liverpool necessarily. But uh, so the TV, and it was just all about who spoke. And there was a man in a suit saying, "Oh, Tom Watson," and then Michael Heseltine, and that was sort of a denial of the experience in itself. You know, I suppose what I took from it is that it's a, it's nice to be in among a crowd that size. And also, I think I've just had a conversation with someone about this. I hate. I mean, everything's a cliche in this conversation. But this thing about, oh, everyone there shops at Waitrose and all that stuff. Well, there aren't a million people as posh as the stereotype in this country. There just aren't. Mm. And most of the people I saw were, you know, teachers and social Mm. workers and people who work in the NHS and all that. And if they're not part of your definition of the salt of the earth, I don't know where you are. 
So ultimately, in that sense, I suppose, on balance, I feel sort of 55, 60% great, which is as high as I ever get. Don't get carried away. Um, let's beat just that out of you over the course of the Because you host <laughs> the, the Anywhere But Westminster series of videos for I The do. Guardian. Um, and during your latest visit to Wigan, uh, there were moments where you seemed uh, pr- pretty exasperated. Um, and it, it seemed almost sort of like the, f- the flip side to the march and obviously you are you know you've, you've been doing this for years and going around different parts of the country does it feel like to Britons did there seem any relationship between the people you spoke to in, in Wigan and the people who were on the march I'm not just talking about class but just in terms of outlook uh, well we made a this series or this sort of sub set of anywhere but Westminster it's called Brexit Breakdown and it might go on for another 20 years I don't know when it's going to finish <laughs> But um, we made a, se- a, a number of films, three or four, over the summer, last summer 2018, which were centred on exactly that sort of juxtaposition because there were at least two, possibly three, as I recall, marches. There was the anti-Trump one mm-hmm. and there was at least one, possibly two Brexit marches in that period. And we kept flipping between these marches and going to Walsall, where particularly in the north of Walsall, it's very heavily Brexit. Um, a, a sort of classic example of a traditional Labour voting seat now gone Tory, which is full of sort of working-class Brexit voters. And uh, there were occasions in it sort of exploring that contrast when it did feel a bit like two different worlds. But having said that, there were lots of people we spoke to on the marches about Walsall, and they were very aware of the fact that there was a job of work still to be done and no one had really done it. And all, again, I mean, that awful uh, thing that... I spent far too much time on Twitter like you all do, but um, it's the only reason I know of Ian, really, is because of Twitter. It has its <laughs> benefits, but... Um, <laughs> Sarah Vine, you know, the, yeah, Michael yeah. Gove's wife said, oh, they think Leave voters are monsters and all that. And they don't, right? That's another, that's another way of breaking the cliche. And we definitely discovered that there. And on Saturday, similarly, you know, I was on a train from the West Country and it wasn't like everyone had barber jackets on. Mm. Um, so I think, I think that can be overstated. It just brings home to me the experience of being on the march, really. The biggest sort of tragedy of three wasted years mm. that A, I'm marching mm. at all for mm. a start and then secondly that nobody on the or very few people anyway on the Remain or Leave or Labour or Tory side has done the one thing that we all resolved we were going to do in the immediate aftermath of the referendum which is setting aside the fact that they voted for it in Seven Oaks and Maidenhead and wherever else we were meant to go to Wigan and Stoke and Merthyr Tidville and all that and say what's happened here mm. and it hasn't happened and I still have that feeling, and I suppose that was somewhere in the back of my mind on Saturday. We'll talk more about that later in the, and, and your sort of experiences doing those videos. Uh, first, a quick reminder that you can see Romaniacs on stage, plus the political podcasting elite at the podcast Live Politics Day in London on Sunday 7th of April. We're appearing alongside Politico's EU Confidential, the New European Podcast, The Week Unwrapped, and our arch frenemies Brexit cast from the BBC. Tickets are on sale now at podcastlive.com. Patreon supporters, check your inboxes for a discount on tickets to the Romaniac show and on full day tickets so you can treat yourself to Ian Dale and James Dellingpole's takes on Brexit too. <laughs> if you're not a Patreon backer, go on, full spectrum. Remember, you get the show early, plus mugs, T-shirts, columns from the panel and more when you support the show. Search Patreon Romaniacs to find out more. Okay, we'll start the news with the new parliamentary reality. On Monday, the Commons voted by 327 votes to 300 to take control of the parliamentary timetable, enabling them to schedule the day of indicative votes that May has been denying them for weeks now. The debates are happening as we speak, or about to happen, Um, and MPs will also control business on Monday. Ian... (coughs) They might control business on Monday. Ian, is the government doing much governing? What do they 
Well, they what do they control at the moment? They haven't been governing for years. Um, I mean, they haven't really been governing at, at any time since the Brexit result happened. I mean, there's no time, there's no capacity in order to do any of the things they need to be doing. I mean, although, t- that being said, they, they did pass this extraordinary porn block policy a few years ago where they decided that now no one gets to look at porn anymore. And if they do, they've got to put all of their names and details and bank statements to pornographers in order to access it all, which I think <laughs> is going to go around really fucking well. I think well the pornographers we can April. be trusted. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. sure that's a great idea. It's a great policy. I can't see any problems with that at all. Um, so they're doing that. I mean, th- you've got a little bit of, I mean, at least there's some, at least some policy making going on in, uh, in DEFRA under Gove, you know, whatever else you might think of him. It, it, there is at least some sort of ideas going on there of a base kind. There's pretty much nothing going on anywhere else across government, and it now has no control over the parliamentary timetable. Or so we think. I mean, this stuff can always be reversed. The assumption in government and the assumption, I think, by people like Letwin is once MPs get a taste of being able to control things in this way, they will keep on pushing it. So when we say they'll also do it on Monday, you've still got to get that passed. You know, just just the assumption is you've got a sniff of blood and MPs will pursue it on that basis. But there's no guarantees on that stuff. I I share that assumption, but there are no guarantees. Uh, Does the fact that debates are happening now, uh, the indicative votes, does does it free MPs up? Does it enable some of them to... To, uh, to voice opinions that they wouldn't have voiced before. I don't. I don't know about that. I mean, it would have been. I, I would have preferred it if things weren't whipped on the basis of if this thing has any intellectual consistency to it. You would presume that whipping is not the way to go because you're trying to explore what MPs could potentially support. Now, pretty early on, it became clear that wasn't the case. They were, you know. Keir Starmer, as they were debating it before it was passed, was asked this question. He was like, oh, and then suddenly you, you could sort of feel him firm up. And he was like, but obviously we'd have to whip against no deal, which, of course, makes sense. That's what the party thinks. But of course, once you start whipping against no deal, you're in the business of whipping for the things that you want and the things mm. you don't want. And suddenly you're not getting a particularly clear impression of what it is that MPs would do. Um, there's also another sort of funny part of Letwin. You know, I mean, Letwin is a very befuddled uh, man, and, and he massively overcomplicates certain things. And there's plenty of things he's done which have been pr- pretty catastrophic in that manner. However, I think to give him some credit, he is in the business of pragmatism right now and of trying to create a scenario where MPs won't just keep on thinking about what is my ideal outcome, but what are the things that I can live with as well. And it's quite possible that when you start exploring that, mm-hmm. as they are today, by allowing MPs to across multiple boxes, you could potentially find things that shuffle out. By the way, I have to say, and I say this with a pretty heavy heart, it wouldn't shock me if of the things that people could live with, if you get into a sort of AV sort of scenario, you've got something that looked quite a lot like May's deal, which would be the thing that the least people want as the ideal outcome, but the most people could live with as a, you know, oh, I could just about survive this. That kind of stuff could shake out, or it could go in a completely different direction towards soft Brexit or even towards people's vote. But at least the business is that of trying to be pragmatic, of trying to think what are the workable compromises people could tolerate rather than what are the nirvanas that they are seeking to find transcendence to to secure. Um, Naomi, Theresa May's latest pitch seems to be vote for my deal and I'll resign. Is that a good... It's not a good office. It's like, I, I'm such a bad MP that you want to get rid of me, but in order to get rid of me, you have to vote for my deal, which you hate. Which is the ultimate embodiment of my crapness, incidentally, which, yeah. which complicates the logic yeah. even more. Because why do you want to get rid of me? Because you did this crap deal, right? Okay, vote for that crap deal. Now go. And I'm in some Mobius strip then of logic. I, I, honestly, I mean, I can't even... If you ask me to explain that, like, in a flow chart, I wouldn't even get past the second box. Would you? 
But <laughs> here comes the second box. Oh. Uh, as um, Ian was alluding to, like you know, th- this is how shit they are that that they couldn't even keep Letwin on board. You know, Letwin mm. is a dyed in the wool conservative. Mm. That's how bad things have got for them. If ever we, I mean, we already knew that you know their 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 power was ebbing away ever ever faster. Um, that that symbolises it. Um, in terms of what's happening this week. For Remainers, the next 48 hours are pretty dangerous. They're kind of a maximum danger point in many respects because either soft Brexit is going to do quite well in indicative votes or and or um, May's deal is going to limp over the line tomorrow or Friday um, when, when Meaningful Vote 3 comes back to it, either with or without a Kyle Wilson-Beckett amendment to it. Um, and by Friday, if neither is broken through, the conversation is going to have to move on to talk of a much longer extension, which of course we want. Um, but it is worth remembering that even a soft Brexit would require an extension beyond the 12th of April. Mm-hmm. Um, so in terms of timeline, it's indicative votes today um, and then perhaps tomorrow or even Friday there's going to be this MV. V3. Um, and as I understand it, Labour are going to whip for the Kyle Wilson amendment in meaningful vote three. Uh, I know they are on the indicative votes today, which is Beckett. Um, and then they're going to abstain on the main motion as amended so that Theresa May will need fewer votes to get her deal over can, the can line. Can you remind people Kyle Wilson? What, so that, 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 what that is effectively doing is it's a political deal um, akin to the <laughs> if, you, if you back me, I'll resign. Uh, it's hmm. uh, if you vote for my deal we can put it back to the people. So we will vote for your deal, subject to ratification uh, by the public. Um, so obviously she would absolutely love to get her referendum over the line without having to put it... Sorry, her deal over the line without having to put it to a referendum um, because it looks ever more likely that the pu- that the public would then savage it in a public vote. Um, but if this is going to be her swan, swan song, then maybe then you know, she's going to have to accept it and get behind it herself. What, nobody is expecting a winner in terms of there being a majority for anything on today's indicative votes. We are expecting some to do better than others and there's a lot of talk that the one around a customs union could end up doing very well. Mm. That would split um, the Tory party. Yes, it, it would. Um, all, all, all options. It's whack-a-mole. <laughs> you, know, you, you bash one down on one side, another one pops up on the other side. Uh, you can't keep everybody happy, that is for sure, um, in, in the world of Brexit. But yes, um, all the MPs have different motivations for voting for and against and abstaining on various different options. So we know that some of the Norway lots are going to abstain probably on the final say stuff, the Beckett Amendment. Um, so even if one were to get a majority today, I think the spread of votes for all the other options is really going to show that Parliament needs proper time to debate um, and come to some some kind of conclusion. And of course, um, with all of this, and if a soft Brexit kind of deal does emerge as the, the only one that can achieve any kind of consensus across the House, th- so too then increases the democratic reason for putting it back to the people because the people haven't had, you know, over the last three years, they've not had... To consider any of that, they've had to think about leaving, staying, and a bit of May's deal that they've heard in the paper. So I think it sort of adds to the legitimacy that no matter what comes out of it, and of course none of those options have been negotiated with the EU either. So I I would probably put money on you know by the end of this week us facing a much longer extension than the 12th of April. But yeah. Before we go into some of the the, the other amendments, um, John, you spend a lot of time talking to the people whose will we hear so much about, um, but the process has become so sort of abstruse and legalistic and complicated that even full-time commentators struggle to keep up with it. Do you find that the people you meet have just sort of... Are they even trying to sort of follow the twists and turns and consider all the the different options? Or is it just bewildering to most it's people. It's bewildering. 
I mean, it would be bewildering to me hmm. unless I was professionally obliged. <laughs> in other words, you know what I mean? In order to feed my family, I have to be interested in this. But if I was still reviewing albums every week, as, as you and I used to do, hmm. Dory, which is a much more pleasurable way of making a living, isn't it? <laughs> while the music press existed. But um, I don't think I would, you know, I think I would find this bewildering, and they do. And I don't just talk to leave voters. No, no. I talk to a lot of Remain people as well. Mm. As I speak, my colleague, John Domacos, is trying to find a golf club for us to go to so we can go and meet... Uh, wealthy leave voters and I think possibly Remainers as well. So it's not it's not like we only go to post-industrial Labour towns, but um, we, we go to those places a lot. And mm. they are, of course, they've tuned out. Everybody's tuned out. I mean, I watched um, Newsnight last night, bless it, and there was a, a bit in that programme where some political journalists were given these squares of what looked like cardboard that had MV3, MV4, referendum election on them, and they had to take it in turns, like putting the tail on a donkey, to go up to this sort of self-adhesive thing. Higher, and, lower. And, and go, lower. It, was like, it was like Bruce Forsyth. Right? And go MV3, MV4, then a referendum, then an election, and then someone else will go, no, you're wrong, it'll go election, then referendum, then MV4 and MV5. And oh, I fuck. just thought, who is this for, right? Mm. And, and, of course, it's not solely in leave voting areas. I think most of the general public f- fundamentally see Brexit as something that happened three years ago, somehow. Uh, they Most of them have the same positions they ever did. It has moved a bit in quite interesting demographic ways. I mean, the only uh, Leave voters that I've met who've moved, by and large, have been British Asian people, which I think is really mm-hmm. fascinating. Mm-hmm. About six months ago, when we tipped up in Hansworth, in, in the city yeah. of Birmingham, where we go a lot, I met quite a few British Asian people who had voted Leave, and now had gone to saying, well, oh, this isn't a good idea. And I think part of that's because they have much less sort of nationalistic cultural baggage. It's a softer vote. Also, mm. they voted leave uh, on the basis that maybe the immigration system would become fairer. <laughs> well, that didn't happen, you know. Uh, and so they've shifted a bit. Yeah. But by and large, the discourse that you have, it doesn't feel that different to me. So the conversations that I was having two or three years ago, only now it has this, I don't know what they're doing, I wish they'd just sort this out, etc, mm. etc, et which I totally understand. I mean, it's, I don't think that's... It's very easy to sort of malign that as a, as a sort of ignorant, stupid position. I don't think it is. I think that's a rational response. You know, people as- have stuff going on in their lives. You know, they don't necessarily want to know what the political editor of a weekly political magazine thinks about whether MV3 is going to come after an election or a referendum. They haven't got boards up in the no. house, have they? Sticking the options. They haven't got self-adhesive <laughs> surfaces. No. Back to that Newsnight scenario. It, it, you know, the sage of our time, Danny Dyer, got it right when he just called it a mad riddle. Because it is, you know, as you say, who's it for and all these machinations of it. Just but bonkers. there is a sort of responsibility for journalists, isn't there, of, of how do you explain this stuff in a way that is readily yeah, understandable. Yeah, yeah. And I just think there's been... Some successes, again, I think probably Sky have done a better job than the BBC, and there's been an awful lot of failures. Some of them self-interested, cynical failures from sort of newspapers that aren't in the business of making this stuff clear. They want it to be kind of alienating to most people. And others where it's just a sort of editorial failure of confidence in your listeners and your readers to go like, well, they can't keep up. So as soon as you come up with anything to do with trade or whatever, they're just like, no, just back the fuck out of that because people will never get it and they'll, they'll switch off. Whereas actually this stuff can be described in ways that have narrative, yep. that are relatively simple, but that are a- accurate. And, in, and TLDR mm-hmm. News on YouTube, I think, are doing that really well. Okay. Yeah. But in addition, it's a, 
It's not just procedure, right? It's the skateboard factory in Bristol who source their wheels from Europe and are mm-hmm. terrified about their supply chain. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? It's the human. It's it? Uncle Joe's mm-hmm. Mint Balls factory in Wigan, where we went, the iconic Northern Suite, who, who do quite well in Europe, and I think mm-hmm. some of their sugar or something is sourced abroad, and they have a dog in the fight. You know, it's what people who work in the NHS do. It's the person who has diabetes and who is terrified about their medication not happening. It's all of those things. And the problem that I have personally with the way that the broadcast media in particular deals with this is it's just a man in a suit. And mm. What Tom Watson or, or Barry Gardner or Jacob Rees-Mogg or whoever said yesterday. And A, that's not the story. Mm. The story is what does this say about the country and where it's going and what are the likely effects on people's lives. Um, and B, it's about ultimately whether this is going to succeed or not. It's about what people think of it. Today, Wednesday, uh, Barry Gardner uh, told BBC Radio 4 the Labour Party is not a Remain party. We've accepted the result of the referendum, which would be a fun message if there's a general election. Um, Naomi, you were keen to point out that the people missed that Corbyn stated in terms that any Brexit deal would have to go back to the public for a final say, and you said this was a a big deal. Um, But they just seem allergic to clarity, and so there doesn't seem to be any reason to kind of trust... um, anything they say that sounds that sounds positive well we have since coming on air seen that they have officially put out a statement saying they are whipping for the beckett amendment which is today's kyle mm. wilson amendment which is about having a huge really. which is a huge oh, development and good. i totally understand why people wouldn't trust them i don't trust them but i do think we absolutely have to cheer them when they do do the right thing because otherwise they're not going to keep on doing the right thing so as a campaigner it's about you know Know your enemy, know your friend, celebrate victories as they come, try and own them and, and encourage people in the right way. And that's why, you know, I spent quite a long time uh, yesterday thanking the Conservatives that had backed Letwin uh, uh, the night before, um, and, you know, and, and, and people like Alistair Burt, who absolutely loved his job in the Foreign Office. I mean, he really loved it. Um, and he's a dyed-in-the-wool Conservative, um, but, you know, has huge respect across the House. And that was no mean feat for him to resign in order to vote for Letwin. So those people do need our thanks and cheer, whether we agree with them and trust them or not, because that, that's the parlous situation that we find ourselves in, and we, we have to do it. The Steve mid- Bryan, man, that's, I mean, fucking hell. Yeah. I thought so little of that. He's a, he's, he was the health minister, he resigned. Yeah. He was the MP for my hometown in Winchester, and I always just thought he was just like this, just... Mm. Dreary. He was like a like a cardboard box that had been left outside for too long in the rain. Like he was just so dreadful without anything. And suddenly he pops up and does the shit. I'm just like, holy fuck, did I read mm. you wrong? Mm. Like there's actually mm. something going on underneath mm. those arms. Mm. But on Labour, you know, the leadership have been in a better place for a while, and it has been the backbench Labour MPs representing Leave constituencies that have been our concern. Um, what we've seen this week actually is that that their number hasn't changed significantly, but the Conservative number has begun to change in our favour quite a bit. It's still, isn't it, impossible, really, to... You mentioned clarity earlier. To get any sense of where they're at, and more to the point, their position will only be a useful and convincing and kind of, what's the word, kind of impactful, to use a horrible American word, position, if they sincerely believe in it and they're prepared to work for it and advocate for it, and to go back to what I said earlier, to somehow embed it out there in the country. Politics only moves when you assemble Mm. a, a coalition, when there's a sense of, of people out there agreeing with you and therefore you having more authority and you, that's what the Labour Party has singularly failed to do. You can't carry people you if you're basically just all go on them. So what they're doing to use a cliche is that they're eternally fattening the pig on market day, right? So they just get there to these votes and say, our position is now this. Well, A, most people don't pick up on that and B, you obviously don't mean it. 
because you've had three years to come to that decision and you've singularly failed to. I know what it looks like when the Labour Party, in its current form, resolves to, to take a position, right? I switch on my phone and I can't move for those video memes and all that, and certain newspaper columnists will remain nameless, write these columns about, about what a great policy this is and all that. Now, mm. I have seen none of that with any of these positions about two weeks ago when they said they wanted a second referendum and now we find out ten minutes ago, contrary to what the venerable Barry Gardner said this morning, they are whipping in favour of the Kyle Wilson Amendment, which sounds like a prog rock band. <laughs> Again, God knows what they think out there. You know. And it's just noise. And the fact that it has no sizable political messaging or sort of heft behind it convinces me, as usual, that they don't mean it. It's not sincere. You get the same thing with their alternate plan, which they're putting forward as one of the things in the indicative votes today. Yeah. Now, there's two interpretations of this thing. I mean, one of them is... Let's, let me do the positive one. The positive one is that it's a different kind of Norway assessment. So we've got two existing Norways that are down. Um, one of them is Norway plus a customs union. We don't know if that can be negotiated. We don't know if that's doable. Another one is Norway as it currently exists. That means without a customs union, super, super doable, but you're going to have massive problems in the border in Ireland and generally with your goods. There is a third idea that could be the Labour idea. It could be what they're talking about when they talk about this special relationship they're going to have with the single market, which is to go... When we say Norway, we don't mean it literally. We mean it in terms of we want to replicate that kind of relationship, have a separate negotiation. We would have different opt-outs. We might even be able to have some kind of say over the rules. That is not real unicorn stuff. That is potentially a doable sort of thing. And that is the most charitable interpretation of what their position is. The less charitable one is they don't know what the fuck they're talking about, they don't have a position or they're not prepared to reveal it. But if that is their position, if not now, then when will they tell us what the fuck it really means? When will they be clear well, well, about what this stuff well, actually talk of a, is? There's and talk of a snap election, which, which of course they would have to Pick take a a, they'd have mm. to take a position. Why no. do you think they would though? I don't do you not think they'd fight it on, in a similar way to the exactly. one the yeah. way they fought twenty seven? So we wouldn't solve anything. Which is sort of say leave this to us. Okay? Mm. I know there's this Brexit thing here and it's a bit irksome and annoying, but you leave that to us and we'll take care of it and let's try and have a conversation and they were partly successful in this and it's a conversation we have to have unquestionably about homelessness and the state of the welfare state mm. and uh, why didn't none of the trains run on time and all of that stuff I think that's on balance I think that's what they would do and that clearly doesn't resolve any of this and it doesn't for them because 88% of Labour members want a final say they are so avidly remain even compared to Liberal Democrat members uh, mm. that, that any form of Brexit breaks the Labour Party it just oh, I does. don't know, though, you see. I, 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 think, I think that in the scenario there was a general election, I think a lot of that 80% who ostensibly are pro-Remain would kind of get in line and go, right, let's have Jeremy as PM and all the rest but of it. But I think enough in marginals could not. I Labour still think voters, capacity, Yeah, Labour voters. I still well, think capacity so for a nasty got, shot. Who have they got to vote for to, to give the Labour Party a fright? The Lib Dems or the Greens? Well, that's right. It, yeah. would be, it would be a constituency by constituency thing, wouldn't it? So obviously, if, you know, you're in a place like mine, then that, that's not going to be pertinent. But if there is one where actually it can go both ways and you have another option, they might take it. I don't know how those numbers shake out, but it's possible that you can lose sufficient seats, given that we're in hung parliament country right now, that it seems likely that no government, no party is going to be elected with a very big majority, mm. that it could be potentially decisive in a general election. But how awful is it? We're, we're sitting here, and I'm only telling you what you know already, and the nominally progressive side of mainstream politics still can't bring itself to do what all successful politicians have to do, which is talk about the issue in emotional, stirring, yes. mm. big story Absolutely. terms, and yeah. to say to people in Wigan and Stockholm, Trent and Merthyr Tidville and everywhere else, look, you know, this is bad news, and of course we need to build two million council houses. 
And of course, you know, the fact we haven't got any hardly any industry left in this country is terrible, but Brexit will make all the all these things worse. And that's why we're taking this position. Instead of which, you know, they talk about it like it's a game of chess. I mean Barry Gardner may as well say today it's E what, E two or E four or whatever those things are, and the bishop <laughs> takes the rook and <laughs> en, pass, en passant. That's what it sounds like to me. Only it's even less interesting, you know. <laughs> Let's briefly go back to our happy place, uh, which was central London last Saturday. The Put It to the People march uh, was very encouraging and it coincided with the revoke petition uh, going off the chart. As luck would have it, the Romaniacs contingent rendezvoused right next to the independent group and our producer Andrew grabbed Rebel MPs Sarah Wollaston and Heidi Allen for a quick word. Do you feel, now that you are part of Take, do you feel a sense of freedom from the things that you have, yeah? Do you know, but the, the thing is that, you know, I know we're still small and perfectly formed, yes. but we're going to get bigger. But the point is that we've already had an impact, and I hope we're going to persuade finally the Labour Party to get actually behind voting for a people's vote, because that's what this is all about. Let's yeah. make sure we get that vote delivered in Parliament this week so that we really can put it to the people. There's been a bit of a, of a groundswell for revoke this week, particularly since May's speech where she attacked Parliament. How do you feel about that? I think I would rather see revoke than we crash out with no deal at all. But my preference all along has been to seek consent for whatever deal is finally lands up on the table as the final deal. Because I think that it's over a thousand days now since we had the referendum. We still don't have proper valid consent to this deal. But if I had to choose between crashing out with no deal or revoke, I would choose revoke because I think that the consequences of no deal are so catastrophic. And the point about that petition is I know a huge number of people who've signed that petition actually want to see a people's vote but they're making that point that if push comes to shove and we're faced with that choice with our toes over the edge of the cliff between going into the abyss or stepping back then we'd choose revoke. Last time there were 700,000 people and not one arrest. There you go. And, well, we'll do our best uh, to get arrested. You know, and look at the... You've <laughs> been listening to Sarah Wollaston on the hotness from Totnes. <laughs> That's my well, new thing. Thank you guys very much. Tig is one thing, but today this is just about freedom, isn't it? I'm overwhelmed. Apparently, police are reporting over two million people here over today. Two yeah, people. yeah, that's what I've. The last time my Twitter was working, that's what it what it told me. Um, and this is just the biggest democratic um, show of how people feel in this country. And the Prime Minister, we, we may think a hundred different things about her, but she cannot ignore this. She absolutely cannot ignore it. Now, the people here today are saying that they want Parliament to grab hold of this process and do something with it and allow people to have a, an option to stay in the EU. And, you know, this has got to send a really powerful message. Because that's what's brought us to this place, because the parties obsessively stick to their point of view, not because it's the right point of view, because it's the opposite of what the other one are doing. So you just end up with this merry dancer going round and round in circles because everybody's busy defending themselves and attacking the other whilst completely missing the point right down the middle, which is the gaping hole in democracy that there is, that people in this country want an opinion on this. And that's what TIG is all about. So did this did this feel qualitatively different from from the last march. I mean, numbers is such a weird game because what I've realised, of course, is that, that you've got crowd experts now, which we didn't have in previous marches. So actually, if you're going to sort of go, OK, this wasn't a million, then the Iraq war march, which is famously a million, can't have been a million either. And so you're in this weird thing of just like, yeah. if you're too accurate, then you're actually kind yeah. of distorting the record because we've had years of inaccuracy. It felt, it seemed to be bigger than the last one. Yeah. Um, Was it? 
Is what, that what you're asking? Yes. Yeah. Was, was, um, it, was, look, it so, was it just a was it like October again? It, it at least. I mean, it certainly to me felt bigger. I know that some of the the sort of the crowd calculations are done on. I think it's four people per square meter, and certainly at many points along the route, it felt like mm. much, much, much more densely uh, packed than that. What for me was a standout difference was. Um, who was there? And I remember saying uh, at the Trump march, or after the Trump march last summer on this show, that until the Remain marches start to look like the Trump march looked, we're not going to be winning. Yeah, I remember that. And yeah, it didn't feel as young and diverse as the Trump march, but it felt a hell of a lot closer to it. There were far more younger people. It wasn't just the, the grey-haired the people great, wearing yeah, the, yeah. The, the the berets and, and things like that. So, so that that did give me, you know, pause for a bit of internal now, celebration. Inevitably, leavers were trying to sort of minimise the march numbers uh, while also trying to undermine the revoke well, petition. But when, when uh, Farage's march was limping... Sorry, yes, but remember just... the people that were there in spirit of oh, Farage's yes, march, yes, which was a bazillion. Right, yes. So that's so different. As opposed to their drinking... Oh, spirit, shut up. <laughs> 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 but we've now embedded the idea of this massive march and, and sort of legitimised at least the idea of revoke, which is yeah. which was not yeah, a couple of weeks ago. It was not legitimised like this. So it, there's only so much that stuff can be t- can be talked talk down, and it's weird because it has no mm. it has no kind of obviously legal weight. And the government was just able to go thanks for the petition, but no thanks, go away. And here's our stock response we gave last yeah, time. But does yeah. it just does it move does it move us forward? To an extent, does it create these certain sorts of yeah, and undeniable I think it, it, it helps make a people's vote, final say, whatever you want to call it, look like more of a compromise than sort of less radical. Um, what I've also found very interesting is seeing which MPs have sort of said, well, actually, revokes not that dreadful an idea. Mm. And you've got some MPs that would back revoke who wouldn't back a final say referendum because there are so many MPs in the Commons who are genuinely terrified of us having a referendum, don't want us to have it, worry about all of the, the violence that might come alongside it, don't want to have to fight it, etc. But do think, well, well, you know, in, in a worst case scenario, revoke would be um, uh, an option. And it has, you know, gained huge importance, whether it's peaked, whether now, you know, that the sort of six million figure is going to be the top or whether we can get it over the line and get it a bit further before it's debated on the 1st of April or not remains to be seen. But jo- Joanna Cherry's motion is quite interesting for the indicative votes thing, which is basically to say, it's not like revoke is this great policy or whatever that we're pursuing. It's if you get, I think it's two days yeah. before, you know, no deal day, the government has to bring a vote on whether MPs want no deal. And if MPs say they don't want no yeah, deal, yeah. they it's revoke. Right. And yeah. that, that is the right way to frame it. It's not like mm. in an ideal world, would we just cancel the whole thing mm. and pretend it mm. never happened? Mm. No, of course not. But if it comes down to that or no deal in mm. a way that Barry Gardner mm. suggested this morning was a difficult choice in some way. Oh, so, so hard. And so very <laughs> di- terribly difficult, of course. No, then we actually have the vote and we see which way MPs go. And that seemed to me to be a very sensible yeah. way. Well, well listener uh, Bex Coates noted on Twitter that revoke mm. was great. kind of like the Remainer's answer to no deal, that it just had this yeah. brilliant clarity in a way. It has to become our insurance policy instead of no deal. It's just like, it's it's it's, it's, it's over, in, Brexit is over in a stroke. I mean, not that obviously Brexit is over with no deal, but you know what I mean? This process mm. is kind of over it. Is that why you think it, it's just got these sort of berserk numbers from people who, including people who are very, very hesitant about people's vote? And I was surprised how many people just went all in for a vote. Is it just that kind mm. of like... You know, it's like a, it's it's the Gordian knot. It's just mm. like one stroke, and we're it's free. It's so funny to see, isn't it? Because we spend 
literally years now in the studio talking about this thing about this idea of like occasionally you go through these periods where you just think you know maybe even just fuck the referendum maybe yeah, we'll yeah. just, go, just call mean, it quits on this shit like and suddenly you're suddenly seeing this huge swell of people actually go for that and, and you must be right that that must be partly an emotional response it's not just it about that it's readily accessible it but it's to make it stop and, and, and it's the the, the the outcome we want from a final say is so that we can revoke article right, 50 right. and it be done with um, the only other thing I would add is that I think we have some responsibility to make sure that what we do with revoke is uh, you know all of the stuff that that John's mentioned that we've not done and neglected in the country you can't just revoke it and go right fuck it back to back to 2015 and right, getting right. on with our lives we have to do something with it but is this a, is this a problem for remain campaigners like sort of people's vote because basically the, the the strategy that was decided on uh, a year ago for remain was the people's vote and revoke was quite a sort of fringe idea. Now it's sort of really strong. There's some people that were some friends who just go, I don't want to come on the march because I don't want a people's yeah, vote. I want, I to, want re- to revoke. Absolutely. And of course it's like, well, and then they were angry that some of the people's vote supporters were, yeah, were opposed to revoke. But of course these are two different the, strategies. Yeah, what do they do? The, the, it is, there is tension. At Best of Britain, our stated mission has always been to stop Brexit by any democratic means. And for a long while, a final say referendum seemed to be the most likely way to achieve that ends. But we've always been open to the fact that it could happen through a general election, it could happen through the MPs doing it themselves, it could happen through a, uh, through a referendum. Um, and I think people, are, you know, as, as you get closer and closer and closer to the cliff edge, nobody wanted to be the the band on the Titanic playing away as it was going down with no hope of ever getting this referendum because remember the numbers weren't and probably aren't still there in the Commons for us to get it. So the route to victory for it was was narrowing and people were feeling that it was it was an emotional response they were feeling that sense of urgency of let's just revoke the thing and of course you know lots of people being very averse to having to fight one mm. uh, as much as they are a general election John, put parliamentary numbers aside say yeah. say that that it happened in that uh, in, in that Wigan video and this is not the first first time that you said this you know you gain the impression that, that not enough had changed and that people would vote the same way in another referendum are you one of those people that thinks that uh, leave would actually win another referendum or do you think that Remain would win but by such a narrow margin that it would just create a whole other problem God, have you got an hour? (laughs) Um, I'm very ambivalent about all of this and you would all presumably agree that it's, it's extremely complicated and there are, to use a modern phrase, no safe spaces you know, every option is replete with danger and we are, we are in the midst of a of a political culture, which feels very sort of delicate. You know, things happen quick and they're unexpected, and sometimes they're really really horrible. So, I do fear that. I also fear that we have a discourse which is just incapable of finding ways through things. I mean, it's kind of Mark Zuckerberg's fault, really. But uh, so, of course, revoke then becomes a thing because, as you've said, it's the mirror image of No Deal, and you can do that in 140 or 280 characters or whatever mm. it is. You know, mm. and I think that's problematic but kind of inevitable at the same time. There's no way out of this, you know, it seems to me, in the sense that whatever is, whatever is decided is going to leave wounds everywhere, and that's the problem. And revoke bothers me, but then equally, I think the key thing about the Leave side, which we've seen over and over again, I don't mean Leave voters at all here, I mean the people who drove sports cars to checkers on Sunday, is clearly... Even if they got what they wanted, they're not going to go away. Mm. We live in the age of the sort of right-wing anarchist revolutionary. That's what it seems to mm. me these people are like. You know, 
Their, their mission really is just to break things. And so mm. you give them this and then they'll say, well, no, ultimately, well, we just thought about that and that's not what we want. And now we're going to tr- make a load of trouble over here about this. I mean, that's the history of Tor- Tory Euroscepticism, isn't it? Not for nothing what they call the people who wouldn't take yes for an answer. So I suppose in the end, then, that sort of pushes my ambivalence into stopping this mm. somehow mm. or certainly avoiding the worst. But I don't. It's not like I, anyone does, and I don't. I don't do that casually. It's hellish. And there's a, there's a vacuum of progressive leadership. That's the other thing. Mm. Say there is all this resentment about you've revoked this and I voted for it, and it's the only time anyone's listened to me for 30 years. You know, time was when the far right came around the corner, there was a Labour movement and a Labour party that would say, don't listen to that person. Mm. They're an idiot, OK? Listen to me, and I, I can talk to you about your problems and, and actually how to meaningfully address them. Now, we don't live in that world anymore, right? Which is, you know, why those horrible voices have an audience. And that, again, bothers me. But, yes, ultimately, if we can avoid this somehow with a great deal of trepidation, I'll have it. Our special guest this week is The Guardian's John Harris, who's anywhere but Westminster video series, travels the country in search of uh, the elusive real Britain. Um, when did the... Uh, <laughs> have you found it yet? No, surreal Britain, no. I keep finding it. Um, when, when's the, when did the start? What year did it start? We started anywhere but Westminster. It wasn't called anywhere but Westminster at first. Um, I think it had loads of titles. It was called John Harris's Fringe when we used to go to party conferences. And we got so annoyed. I mean, you know what they're like, right? You're hungover all the time and you keep seeing George Osborne. It's bad news, right? <laughs> so we then thought, right, leave that. And we went out of the conference bubble into Brighton was the first mm. time we did it. And spoke to people about politics and it was really fascinating. So we thought, we'll carry that on. And then it became a series about the 2010 election. And then once austerity started happening, it got called anywhere but Westminster. So it's been going about nine years. And I remember bumping into you at Glastonbury on the day of the referendum... <laughs> And, um, God, remember that. But, you know, before the result, neither of us knew what would happen. But then, sort of in retrospect, I think, well, no journalist, perhaps no other journalist, has spent more time than you speaking to people, you know, across the country, but including a lot of areas that voted leave. But even you weren't you weren't going, oh, it's definitely going to be leave on that day. No, but I knew they were in with a shout. You, you, a serious, serious shout. You, you, there'd totally. been a lot of alarm bells. Totally. I, we had this feeling... It's not just me, certainly. I mean, this is a co-created series. John Domacos, he's a very, very talented journalist and filmmaker who I make the films with. Mm. What happened was, um, we initially were in the same frame of mind as a lot of people. We thought Remain was probably a shoo-in. And so we had all these stupid ideas that we were <laughs> we were going to go to Europe and make jokey films about how the Europeans felt about this sort of spasm and all that. you know. And we didn't... Initially, we didn't think we were going to do that much on the nitty-gritty. And then two things happened. We went to Stoke-on-Trent and followed the Labour Party canvassing for Remain, and out of 24 houses on one street, 23 will leave. And even the Labour Party was shocked. So that was, whoa, hold on a minute. And then we did a road trip, which started in Merthyr Tidville in Wales, which is pretty solidly leave. And then we got to Hansworth, which I think I mentioned earlier, in Birmingham. And, um, you know, I sort of had a liberal lefty assumption, I suppose, that in sort of inner city, diverse, multicultural areas, people would be largely Remain. It wasn't the case at all. And then we got to Manchester, and then... I remember this going up and down Princess Parkway, the main road into Manchester. I think we might have even knocked on doors trying to find leave voters and we couldn't find any. And, yeah, I remember getting in the car and thinking, God, this is this may well happen. And that, if you read even the accounts of um, the official Remain campaign, they had thought they had it in the bag. Mm. If you read Craig Oliver's memoirs and those Tim Shipman books... Mm. 
I didn't feel like that at all. I really felt, I, God, yeah. this is on a knife edge. And it felt like the side that had all the momentum behind it was leave. Same as when we went to the States in 2016. I came back thinking, Trump's not a joke. I mean, this is mm. pretty serious stuff. Yeah. And you've, like you said, you've gone to a, a range of places. Yeah. Uh, it's not just sort of safari and leave country. But a lot of uh, <laughs> people do get annoyed that, that it's always that on, on TV and radio, it's like it's a pub in Luton or a market square yeah. and it's sort of Battleton. Do you think that there is in sort of mainstream broadcasters a tendency to kind of favour not just uh, leavers but a particular stereotype of leavers like you said not the kind of affluent ones that, you know that sort of sit in villages in North Dorset yeah um, and, and and is that has that has there been is there an imbalance in the kind of field of Vox Pops which actually misrepresents where the country is uh, there's two ways of answering that question this might be like a politician's answer so the first one is, I get a bit annoyed now. There is this sort of thing on social media where people say, oh, not another voice from a Leave voting constituency. That's all you ever hear. Well, we didn't hear much from those people and places for 20 or 30 years. <laughs> so in that sense, I'm not that apologetic. I think what's pretty awful is the way TV does Vox Pops. And that's another part of the question. You know, we do not go up to people, throw them against the wall with a camera the size of a house, with me dressed in a suit and say, what do you think about Brexit, little man? That isn't what happens. We say, what's it like living here? How are you doing? How do you feel about the future? And sometimes the conversations go on for 10 or 15 minutes. A lot of them are appointed and say, they're not all Vox Pots. We go to people's places mm. to work and all that. And that's the way that you do it. And you find out who people are and where this comes from. So I think people's annoyance with sort of leave voting Vox Pops is often, just, is often as much as anything about the way they're done and how sort of crass they are. I think that's part of the reason. The other thing is, the other reason why we do spend time in those places is... Because I'm not the BBC, and the subtext of a lot of our films, probably everything we've ever done, actually, is about how we're going to put progressive politics back together. You know, I've only been doing this since progressive politics was sort of in a state of crisis of one kind or another. Mm. And I'm not, therefore, massively interested in people in Sevenoaks in Kent who are wealthy, who voted leave, because they're not going to ever going to be part of the progressive family and about how we sort of push beyond this. But the sort of essential formula of progressive politics was ever thus and it still is the case is you put together the progressive middle class and what used to be called the traditional labour voting working class that's absolutely essential and if we lose Wigan and Stoke and Merthyr Tivill and all of that to the clutches of re-smog politics then I think progressive politics is probably stuffed and that's why we go to those places a lot. There's a kind of a manner thing as well isn't there in the, ma in, in the way that you're doing it so in that last one you have a moment you're, you're chatting with a guy he's um, basically he's been completely screwed by austerity um, and on universal credit, yeah. Yeah, right, right, yeah. That's Yes, quite right. And and you ask him how he voted, and he said leave. And, yeah. and there's a point where you ask him, how would you vote now? And he says leave. And I put my... I, I literally had to turn around, and I groaned and put my head in my hands. And then when I turned back to the TV, <laughs> you were just stopping from basically doing things like Yeah, not quite, head, not quite head in hands. I was looking up going, wow. I was looking at John and saying, wow. Like so, I mean, so my thing is that you're not hiding your reaction no, to no. what you're being told, but it doesn't seem like you're losing them. What... What is going on there? Because the the the, the well, because the, the what initial with me, you mean? Yes, exactly. But in the way that that you are conducting these things. Well, I don't judge people. I didn't put my nuts. I mean, I didn't. I know. I understand why you probably want to put your head in your hands, but I didn't put my head in my hands. 
Because actually, I mean, sorry, I mean that you're not masking your sort of like. No, no, and you, you do put, you do push back in a way that, that your traditional vox pop. Yeah, we got go, better at that. Listen. We yeah. got better at that. I mean, that's that's kind of hard in the sense that no one knows who we're talking. To. No one knows who these people are. They're not famous or anything, right? Mm-hmm. So if I happen to interview Jacob Rees-Mogg or whatever, I would say, "What the hell are you talking about?" But you know, someone I've just met in Wigan or Stoke-on-Trent or whatever, that's not what they're there for. And I'm, to be honest, I'm pretty chuffed they've given us the time of day. Mm. And I'm not that we're not there to mock or judge anybody. I mean, unless they turn out, which happens in a very, very small minority of cases, to have absolutely outrageous racist opinions. But um, by and large, we're there to listen to people. And that's coloured, I suppose, by my own ambivalence in the sense that we said this a lot in 2016, going around the place, if I lived in Stoke-on-Trent, say... I think I would, you know, I, I can't really say this with massive authority because I've never lived in Stoke-on-Trent, but I think if I did, I would have voted leave. Mm. I would have done. Because no one's paid a blind bit of notice to my city in 20 or 30 years. All I see is empty pottery works, right? And they come to me and say, oh, it's all right, we'll give you a bit of social mobility, which says we'll give the fortunate few among you a ladder to get out. We're not going to materially affect where you live. Well, I said, sod that. Mm. You know, and people did read the ballot paper as saying... to. I'm going to adopt your profane style here, Ian, as saying fuck off or not fuck off. And a lot of people voted fuck off. Well, you wrote a, a really good piece in January called England's Rebel Spirit is Rising and it wants a no-deal Brexit. And it, it, <laughs> I don't write the headlines. Can I just make that no, <laughs> but, but it Sounds did, like a bad Billy Idol album. <laughs> <laughs> but it did sort of relate <laughs> that fuck you spirit where it was kind of like, you know, going back to the levellers, not the band, um, and, you know, and, and, and punk, and that there was this kind of like th- this aspect of Britain, which is there in British history, which has been perhaps uh, sort of underrated. Do you think this has revealed Britain to be a kind of more, um, I, I know, a less rational, a more angry, a more in some ways even anarchistic country than I think people think it is? That tradition's always there, but there's still this idea of kind of, oh, keep calm and carry on. But th- that kind of the fuck you spirit yeah, yeah. had been underrated. Yeah, I think that's always been there in English culture. And there are, you know, I mean, three or four hundred years is not that long. So you can find echoes of the more kind of crazy bits of England around the time of the Civil War. I always think the fact that the great sort of um, Cromwellian redoubt was the east of England, if you if you look back to that. Mm-hmm. And um, lo and behold, you know, where where was the the most solid Brexit places have been? I mean, East Anglia, yeah. Great, Yar- great Yarmouth, Lincolnshire and all that. Now, yeah. Douglas Carswell, who's a bit of a act, let's be honest, but he was very keen on that, you know, yes of course we're the parliamentarians but I think there are all sorts of resonances deep in English history that show you that on occasion we're not rational and we sort of lash out and, I mean there's all sorts of mythology about this, you know, that it was the Normans who forced us to be rational and they're still you know, like those Paul Kingsnorth books, which I really like, that there's a much more sort of visceral chaotic sort of sensibility lurking in us somewhere uh, I think it's definitely there, Fintan O'Toole and Punk Rock was a manifestation of it, Fintan O'Toole's book, hmm. Uh, as a passage in it about exactly this, which is really interesting to think about, that um, a lot of Leave voters, male Leave voters of a certain age, their formative experience is punk rock. Mm. And it wasn't, you know, Susie and the Banshees and Wire. <laughs> um, it was, you know, Sham 69 <laughs> and <laughs> Steve Jones crashing his hand down his Les Paul in the pistols and all that. You yeah. know, and that's in there somewhere too. It's very, very deep. You know, even just to say people voted because there wasn't a pottery factory anymore, doesn't vote leave for that reason, doesn't do it justice. It's incredibly deep-seated and complicated and we've only just started to understand it. Finally, I mean, you're a journalist, you're not a campaigner. Your job is to sort of listen to people and maybe, you know, like I said, sometimes push back, but rather than to persuade them. Um, but there is, of course, 
um, criticism of those Remainers that, that do just kind of wag their fingers or call, call people idiots and so on. And, yeah. and obviously there are, but if there are people's vote or even just in terms of kind of, I don't know, God forbid, bringing the country back together slightly, you know, ways of talking to leave voters are really important. What have you... Um, learned is there any I mean I mean it's not like you're meeting loads of people who have changed their minds but what seems to sort of cut through what what common ground what areas of common ground do you find uh, well particularly when we were flipping between marches over the summer in London and Walsall there's one of those films I think makes the argument at the end that it's surprising how much people talk about the same stuff so on the march a lot of people were saying my kid's school hasn't got any money and they keep asking me for donations to buy pencils or why is there all this litter in the streets or you know the social fabrics falling apart and in Walsall a majority of people only they say the same stuff if you ask them about where they live so that strikes me as a sort of coalition waiting to waiting to be assembled that's kind of part of it but I think the other thing is because we're English we sort of it's like sex politics and religion at dinner parties what's actually going on here is something we don't talk about and it strikes me it's about two things, really. One is about history and a certain reading of history. I mean, all over Europe, and in the States for that matter, mm. they're having a huge political conversation about history. I think, it's, you know, the aftermath of the crash has sort of brought all this stuff to the surface. And we, we seem reluctant to do that. And I think we have to tell the story of this country in a, different, in a slightly different way from Nigel Farage, very different way, and say, we're not that, right? All of this stuff about... Oh, buccaneering England, and you know, weren't we great when we won the Second World War single-handed? And I mean, that, that idiot Mark Francois does this all. Am I allowed to say idiot? Yeah. Oh yeah. He does that all <laughs> oh, the yeah. time, saying, "Oh, if it wasn't for us, then Europe wouldn't be free." Well, that's just nonsense. We all know that's nonsense. So we, we need to have the conversation, I think, about history and how that feeds into that, because that's the stirring stuff which Leave have used really successfully. I mean, it's replete with bloody references to the Second World War, isn't it? It never stops. Why haven't we got a story to tell? And the other one is about now. And England and the country that England is. So much of this is about England and a certain definition of Englishness. As distinct from the UK. Yeah, I don't think the UK is politically that relevant anymore. I really don't. My daughter's nine years old and Britain is like athletics, but she lives in England. She was born in Wales and Scotland's where they had the independence referendum. You know, Britain is not... I've, I've said to her, do you know what Britain is? And she kind of says, yeah, Union Jacks and all that. But it's not... We live in a different world now from where we were 20 or 30 years ago. But the other thing is, Englishness in England was the problematic thing in this referendum. Mm. It was about English resentment. It was about the fact English people felt powerless. It was about the fact that we let Nigel Farage and Jacob Rees-Mogg run away with England and define it as they wanted to. And England is not just the places that they claim to speak for, which incidentally they don't speak for terribly convincingly, England, Bristol and Manchester and London. We're not... The other thing we shouldn't accept at all is that some of us are somewheres, in other words, all local mm -hmm. and so on, and others are anywheres and globalist. I'm both, and I'm sure you are as well. And we shouldn't accept that. Don't fulfil your own stereotype. And I think between all those things, if your rhetoric shifts and you have a deeper sort of richer conversation, you might find yourself able then to... I don't know about win leave voters around, but certainly to have a dialogue with people who voted leave that we haven't managed to have so far. So, but it's cultural and economic. It's massively because cultural. It, it's not just that idea that if you kind of fix 
austerity, if you ended austerity, that's a would big do it part all. of the conversation. Mm. If we built a million council houses tomorrow, Britain would feel, or England would feel like a less angry place, but it's not the whole of the solution. But the die was cast when the people in charge of the Remain campaign said, What we're going to base this all around is the specious idea that you're going to be £38 a week worse off if we leave. Once that was adopted as the tactic, I think the game was lost in retrospect. Because politics is about emotion and belonging and very rich things. Unfortunately, the end of the show is almost here, and we can't get an extension from Donald Tusk. So, John Harris, as our guest, uh, what will you put in the Brexit time capsule of things we'll miss if we ever leave the EU one day? Right, so I thought about this. When I was 14 and I had to do my options for what was then O-levels, my favourite group was the Style Council, Paul Weller's vehicle after the jam, who were keen to be seen as new Europeans. They used to have their pictures taken, reading La Corriera della Sera and Paris Match and all this, right? And I took two language O-levels because of Paul Weller, right? I took French and German and I started smoking Gitan, right? And I, and I think... Are you putting the Style Council in there? Yeah, no, but that, I think that sort of post-Style Council Europeanism is a precious thing. And I think leaving the European Union unquestionably imperils it. So I would like people to know if we do leave, there once was this thing where, because of the records you bought, you smoked Gitan and took French and German O-level. <laughs> Galois were always better. Uh, I like Gitan. I think because Paul Weller was in the face smoking Gitan, I thought you had to smoke Gitan. I think that's a great way to make life choices. <laughs> <laughs> right. Paul Weller is, is an ideal for living. In my opinion, <laughs> you knew that anyway, Dorian. I think that in my own well, uh, slightly ill-advised way. <laughs> this week's non-English clip is in Gaelic, and it comes from Mary Rose MacIsaac, who went to the People's Vote March the weekend along with the Highlands and Islands Student Association. That means remote places, students, and young people need to have a voice. Thanks, Mary Rose. Send us your European language clips at info at romaniacs.com. We'll use the best ones. That's the end of the show. John, thanks for coming in. Um, where next for Anywhere at Westminster? As I said, John, who I make the films, it's on the phone at the moment trying to go and find people in golf clubs who voted leave. That's the last, oh, sort, yes, of, yeah. last sort of piece of this jigsaw. Just to prove we don't just go to leave voting Labour town. <laughs> is this is this is this series ever gonna ever gonna win? No. Well, my a colleague this is your of mine life's did, work now. No, yeah. Well, this is very sobering. A colleague of mine had a conversation with someone who works for the Times last week. Who said anyone who's a political journalist will be dealing with Brexit for the rest of their working lives. Mm. So I'll see you next year, and a year after that, and a year <laughs> after that. <laughs> Oof. There was there is there is um. There is the Brexit editor of a major newspaper who said the other day, like with him on presence, he was like, oh, pretty soon I'll be able to stop covering it. And I'm just looking at him and thinking like, are you so bad at your job that you actually fucking believe what you just but, said? Like, that is tragic. But John actually said this at Glastonbury on the day and he goes, I hope Remain wins because otherwise this is going to be all that mm. we're thinking and writing about for a long time to come. Uh, and he was right. <sighs> Fuck it. Uh, anyway, Glastonbury as well. At Glastonbury. Good, that was a good good weekend. <laughs> Might be the second, but sort of it will kind of be the second Brexit Glastonbury to some extent, won't it? It will colour it. Yeah. So if it's muddy as well, God help us. <laughs> Jesus Christ. You can do what you like to the country, but leave Glastonbury alone. <laughs> it is entirely possible that we will be back again before the end of the week uh, to talk about indicative votes. Who knows? In the meantime, here's our theme tune, Demon is a Monster, and a salute to some of the latest Russian bots, sock puppets, and fake petition signers <laughs> who've given us their valuable support on Patreon. Spasibo, <laughs> Druzia. Um, <laughs> Thank you very much, uh, Nicholas Stanhope, 52379 uh, Ashley Gornel, uh, Neville Wilson, Sarah Haslam, uh, Susie Duncan Bendix, James Denslow, Ian Rosen. Fergus Curran and Paul Beswick. 
Hello to Inga Afferink, Ross Hamilton, Shahid Ishmael, Jeffrey Harris, Eleanor O'Driscoll, Robert McCarthy, Gopak Bagvatula, apologies if I said that incorrectly, Ben Fisher, Peter Johnston and Paul Friedman. And hello from me to Christoph Katz, Hannes Saal, Alexander Q, Michelle B, Martin Smith, Martin Scott, James Wallace, Ravinda Dahul, Guy Tolberg and Ruby Sapphire. See you next week, if not earlier. Romaniacs was presented by Dorian Linsky with Naomi Smith and Ian Dunt. The producer is Andrew Harrison and audio production was by me, Sophie Black. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. 